0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Beryl Bender Birch. Beryl is one of the most popular yoga teachers in the United States, and is a best-selling author of Power Yoga, Beyond Power Yoga, and Boomer Yoga. With degrees in philosophy and comparative religion from Syracuse University, Beryl has been teaching the classical system of Ashtanga Yoga for 33 years. In 2000, she was named by Yoga Journal as one of their Innovators, Shaping Yoga Today. With Sounds True, Beryl has published several titles, including a new book, Yoga for Warriors, Basic Training in Strength, Resilience, and Peace of Mind, a System for Veterans and Military Service Men and Women. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Beryl and I spoke about engaged yoga and the art of paying attention. We also talked about how yoga can be helpful for people with post-traumatic stress and how one of the first techniques that Beryl likes to introduce to people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress is the technique of ujjayi breathing. Beryl even led us in an initial practice of ujjayi breathing. Beryl also talked about the relationship between quantum physics and yoga. And finally, how yogis are called to be spiritual revolutionaries at this time in history. Here's my conversation with a true pioneer, Beryl Bender-Birch. Beryl, here you are, almost 72 years old, And I think someone who's widely considered one of the pioneers, one of the trailblazers of the development of yoga in the West. And I'm curious here at the beginning of our conversation to know what's most important to you for people to know about yoga. If you had to really boil it down, what matters the most to you to communicate about yoga.
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> what a what a good way to begin our wonderful conversation, Tammy. Um, it has always been important to me to let let people know that yoga. The word yoga, we we tend to use it synonymously in our conversation and today's world we tend to use it synonymously with the word asana or the the practice of the yoga postures and when people say oh i'm going to do yoga their friends tend to think oh you're going to do that exercise and my intention has always been to let people know that yoga is is a is an experience that we use the word to describe a method, we use it to describe a practice, but it really is classically an experience. It's something that happens to you when you're able to begin to, as it says in the Yoga Sutra, which is one of the great textbooks on on the, the methodology of yoga, is, it's what happens when you're able to quiet the mind. And I think that it's a natural thing that when we first step on the path, where we're, whether we're young chronologically or young just experientially with yoga, that we get sort of, most of us, you know, get kind of enamored or swept up into the physical practice, particularly if we do a, a strong um, rajasic or a, an active practice like, like some of the practices today, the vinyasa flow and some of the asana practices like Power and ashtanga and vinyasa flow, and so we tend to focus on that physical aspect of the practice. And I think that's as it. I think that's normal. I think that's a natural part of our evolution. But I also think that asana sort of represents like the doorway. We walk through the doorway, thinking that's all there is. And then we get into the practice and we walk into this enormous, cavernous room, you know, this beautiful room that is the experience of yoga itself. And we go, oh my gosh, this is yoga? Uh, I often ask students that in my teacher training programs. I ask this question almost every workshop I teach is, how many of you feel like yoga has changed your life? And Everyone always puts up their hand, and I go, well, what happened? How, how did that happen? You know, what was the, how, how, how did that happen? Because a lot of things we do change our lives, but I think we get drawn into the practice. I tend to joke around and say, you know, once you get into it, you can't get out, so, you know, make sure you make sure you this is what you really want to do, but... But it draws us in. You know, we learn all the practices, whether you're doing asana or breathing or meditation, all teach us to pay attention. And there's something about learning to pay attention, no matter what tradition, I think, what spiritual path you might be following, that that drives transformation. And you may not think that's going to happen when you first start. You might start because... You want your hamstring muscles to be longer, or your doctor told you need to relax, or oh, you should do yoga. You could be a little more flexible, you know, or you have an injury you want you're trying to heal, or and then you start practicing. And if you really are practicing, which making an effort to pay attention in whatever practice you're doing, I think things start to change, and you begin to really drive change, you begin to drive transformation.
0: Now, Beryl, hearing you talk about the experience of yoga as something that perhaps the postures are a doorway into makes me want to understand more what you mean by this, this experience of yoga. I'm
1: looking pretty much at the classical definition as it comes right from the Yoga Sutra, which is the book that was gathered the, together, that was kind of organized by a rishi named Patanjali over 2,000 years ago. And when you study classical yoga, it's your textbook, so to speak. And it's what's totally amazing to me about uh, the Yoga Sutra, which is the name of this Book is that it's so relevant today, and it starts out with a pretty esoteric sort of um, explanation of what yoga is, and then it goes on in the next chapter to to uh, be a little more practical and gives the sort of the practical roadmap for poor unenlightened souls like us of how we can, you know, how we can have this experience of yoga, but basically. What it's saying is that yoga is what happens. Very often yoga practitioners think, well, yoga means yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. The Sanskrit is yoga citta vritti which I'm sure you and many of your listeners probably are familiar with. And, and it translates as yoga is the quieting or the cessation or the stopping of the thought waves, of the arisings, out of the out of the chitta out of the mind. And if you look at that you think well that's not really a definition it's kind of like Patanjali is saying if you want to have the experience of yoga go this way do this quiet your mind and then he says this is how you do it. There are two things you need to do you need to have a practice and you need to learn non-attachment. And he defines practice as making an effort to keep your mind steady. And so I always look at that and say, well if if the Sanskrit word for practice is abhyasa, if if that's what practice means, then then when can we practice? If it's simply about paying attention, then we can practice all the time. And we can practice when we're in the shower, when we're driving our kids to school, when we're you know, stuck in a traffic jam, we can practice when we're scoop and dog poop in the backyard, you know, it's all about being present. And so for me, the the experience, yoga is really the experience of samadhi, which is the eighth limb or the eighth step in this eight limb path, which is enlightenment. And you go, well, you can't really, you can't really, you can't really say what yoga is it 's a science of self realization it 's a it 's a way to consciously evolve it 's a practice um, You could ask many people and they would say as you know as we started out here it's it's it 's going to a yoga class um, but really classically it 's the experience of you can't say what it is. You can only experience it. I guess the best way to describe it would be to say boundlessness or that experience of oneness, that experience of looking into the face of God, that experience of recognizing that, wow, we really are all connected. I mean, we you can hold that worldview, we, and, and it's great if we do, if we say, well, yeah, we understand that that we're connected to the people on the other side of the the planet and quantum physics is sort of bearing that out they're saying well you know there's this idea of non-locality means that things can be connected even though they're not in proximity and i look at that and say well the yogis have known that for thousands of years you know that we're all connected and from what we read about people that have had this experience they all seem to say you can't really describe the experience um but it's this understanding that really there's only one of us here. If one of us is hungry, we're all hungry. And I think we're all sort of evolving toward that. I mean, this, I, this huge turnout for the People's Climate March in New York City that happened in September, um, just to me, is engaged yoga. It's a lot of people, many of those people I know probably are yoga practitioners and they're out there taking their yoga into, certain, you know, into social activism, which I think is happening more and more these days, which is really exciting because that's something that has really interested me for a long time.
0: Now, I'm curious, how do you make the connection for someone? who comes into a yoga class because they want help reducing stress or help losing weight, whatever. They have some motivation that's like that. That's why I'm here. I'm here to you know, work on my belly fat issue, whatever it might be. How did they, through the postures and through doing the practice, connect to this experience of samadhi and this taste of oneness?
1: Slowly, over you know, slowly, progressively. You you don't even go there. I think as a as a teacher, um, I think y- you you have to meet people where they are. And if you've been doing yoga forty years, your perspective is going to be a little different than someone who's just stepping onto the path. And I think it's important we all realize that there are people behind us on the path and. There are people ahead of us on the path, and I, I don't think everyone is at the same level of awareness or evolution. I mean, some people are still throwing trash out of the windows of their car, and other people wouldn't think of it. And and I think what's important is that if you, as you gain a little more awareness, I mean, when you learn to pay attention, which is what yoga is about, yoga is, it isn't a, I used to tell my beginning classes in New York City back in the 80s, this isn't a stretch class. If you want a stretch class, go to the gym. Yoga is about learning to pay attention. And if you're going to start by paying attention to your toes and keeping your feet together and paying attention to your alignment, paying attention to your breathing, and you're going to start to see what distracts you. You know, you might be in class and all of a sudden you're looking at the person next to you and you're thinking what a nice outfit they have on and maybe you should go shopping and your outfit isn't so nice. The next thing you know, you're on the bus going down, you know, Fifth Avenue in New York City shopping when physically you're still in in the yoga class. And the moment you recognize that you're not present, that you're not here, a good yoga teacher will encourage you to to come back. You know, bring your attention back to your breath. Be present. All these all these yoga practices are are mindfulness techniques and that's what creates transformation. I think the more we pay attention, the more conscious we become, the more aware we become of what's going on around us. And you start to it, it's like it drives conscious evolution and you start to move from the first floor to the second floor to the third floor, and pretty soon you're looking out the fourth-story window, and you're saying, wow, I didn't know all this was here. You know, six months ago, all I could see was out the first-story window. and So I think it's about matching impedance levels, really, about just meeting people where they are without arrogance, without proselytizing, without... You know I talk a lot about spiritual arrogance and saying oh i'm I'm so evolved, I recycle you know and and looking with disdain at people that don't recycle, you know what what increasing awareness that comes as a result of your spiritual practice, I think should create um, compassion and gratitude, you know I Someone the other day was one of my students. I don't know a couple of weeks ago, I guess, was moaning about some totally something that was obviously very important to her, but really in the big picture, pretty insignificant. And I said, "Look, try go spend a couple of days in the labor camps in North Korea, and then come back and tell me how miserable your life is." You know, I I think we we. We, our yoga practice teaches us to be grateful for what we have and to focus on what we do have and not what we don't have. So that person that comes in looking to lose weight, I think that, that that's the language you speak to them in. You go, oh, this is great. You know, Learn to breathe, become more mindful, be mindful of what you eat, and begin to move a little bit, and slowly they lose a couple pounds. Swami Satchidananda always used to say, and you know, someone asked him once, "Oh, I'm a smoker and I don't want to smoke and I'm trying to quit and I'm so worried. I don't." He said, "Don't forget about it. Don't worry about it. Just do more yoga, and the desire to smoke will fall away." And um, I, I, I find that kind of happens to people.
0: What would you say to someone who says, "You know, I'm inspired by what you're saying." And yet I find it really difficult to have the discipline to do yoga regularly. Mm -hmm. I've done a little bit. I went to some classes. I kind of got turned on. And as you're talking now, I'm starting to get excited. But I have some kind of discipline problem when it comes to practice. (laughs) Oh,
1: my God. (laughs) What would you – what do you think? I mean, that is – isn't that a huge question for all of us about finding discipline in our lives? If you want to master anything – you know, George Leonard used to say that he wrote a book called Mastery and talked about, you know, that if you want to master anything you have to get used to the idea of doing the same thing, whether it's guitar or opera singer or the computer or, you know, yoga, you have to do it and and um I I just started a teacher training program here in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, just this past weekend and it's a year-long program and um, it was the first weekend and I have young people in the training who are very enthusiastic and um, and I assigned them a pranayama practice, a breathing practice and they get a calendar and they have to put a little check on the calendar every day that they do it and I said, when you wake up in the morning, you're going to do two minutes of conscious breathing and I taught them three-part yoga breathing, and, um, and I said, do not tell me that you do not have time to do this. You know, just start with developing the tiniest discipline. You know, just breathe for two minutes. You brush your teeth every day. You know, there are a lot of things that you do every day, I don't care if you do it while you're lying down in bed or you do it while you're hiking or you do it while you just do 2 minutes of conscious breathing. Now, 10 months from now, I'm hoping that they can do 15 minutes of real pranayama practices. But what do you think? How how do how do we build discipline at anything? How 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 does that happen? Just little by little, right?
0: I think so. I liked your answer very much. Now, Beryl, I want to turn our conversation to a new book that you've just released called Yoga for Warriors. And it's a yoga training system for veterans and military service, men and women. And can you talk a little bit about why here at this point in your life you decided to turn your attention to Yoga for Warriors?
1: Well, it kind of, Came to me through inspiration from some of my students. Um, about in 2007, uh, two of my students and I founded a an organization called uh, a nonprofit called Give Back Yoga Foundation. I had required graduates of my school and who graduated from teacher training programs to do a give-back project in their communities. And again, similar to what I said at the beginning of our talk, Tammy, is that I, w- I told them, look, it isn't just about teaching asana. I don't care if you walk dogs at your local shelter or plant trees in an impoverished neighborhood. It's all, there are many ways to practice yoga, and all of these give-back projects would be service projects that we would accept as um, as as an extension of your yoga practice. And so that turned into this desire to start a nonprofit called the Give Back Yoga Foundation to support yoga teachers to do the same thing. De- develop If you want to develop a give back project in a in an underserved or under-resourced part of your community, we're here to help you. We're going to raise money and we'll help you we won't pay you a salary, but we'll help you in any other way. We can provide, you know, we can provide resources. We can provide transportation. We can provide printing costs and shipping and publish, you know, include publications. So that was how we started. And for the first couple of years, we were worked with uh, yoga in prisons, and we also funded some projects for. Um, Women in shelters, we had some programs for at risk youth, and all of these were teaching either mindfulness or uh, meditation programs or asana programs and um, One of my students began working with veterans about oh eight or nine years ago as her give back project when she graduated from my school and she got very involved in uh, working with veterans and volunteered for years and finally wrote a little book and did a CD and did breathing practices. And today her uh, Mindful Yoga Therapy for Veterans is in about 42 VA hospitals. And we've made tremendous inroads uh, with getting yoga of having yoga become available in, in all its forms, not just asana, to veterans and veterans groups. So I thought, what a great idea. You know, maybe I should work on a book for veterans. I started about three years ago, and thanks to Sounds True and Give Back Foundation, I'm holding a copy in my hand. I, I just can't believe it. It's so exciting. So our goal is to get this to about 100,000 veterans and um uh, there, there's so much research coming out now, and so many studies coming out showing how so many of these practices. Uh, we're really getting a lot of, um, clin- you know, clinical-based data and, and and evidence-based data and clinical trials that are showing that meditation, asana, breathing, are really helping and worthy of integrating into treatment modalities for all of the anxiety disorders like post traumatic stress and um insomnia and anxiety and so um so I've I just spent 3 years working on this book and now we have it and now our our goal is to have it help
0: Now towards the beginning of the book Yoga for Warriors You introduce the technique of ujjayi breathing as a way to calm down an overstimulated nervous system. And I wonder if you can introduce for us here in this conversation for our listeners how they might be able to start experimenting with ujjayi breathing as something that they could use if they find themselves needing to calm down their nervous system.
1: I would just be delighted to do that. The ujjayi breath is a, is is what I guess we could call a very adaptogenic. It's kind of like ginseng. It can it can be an activating practice. It can stimulate the sympathetic nervous system if it's done really strongly and powerfully. It also can be a very calming and relaxing breath if it's done. More gently and softly and quietly, but it's basically a controlled, closed mouth breathing technique, and there's a very soft sound that accompanies it. It's as you, um, it's kind of like when you whisper. When you when you're whispering, you know, you can feel there's a a, a slight contraction at, at, right in the at the base of your throat. What's actually happening is the glottis or that space between the vocal cords actually contracts a little bit. And it narrows the passageway, which increases the velocity of the air going through there. So as you whisper, you're controlling the flow of air. It's also, you can, you're, our listeners and people joining us in this can at home practice this by just whispering in the, the, the ah sound. So as you go you can feel that little contraction and then you can do it on the inhale. And do that a few times until you get a sense of the way that feels and then close your mouth and continue to keep that sort of sibilant and it's kind of aspirant sounding on the inhale and kind of sibilant sounding on the exhale. And you just... And if you... Increase the length of the exhalation slightly so that it's a little bit longer than the inhale, it has a very calming and relaxing effect and tends to, um, exhalation tends to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the autonomic nervous system that calms us down. And so if we're startled or stressed or anxious or having you know, a flashback to some traumatic experience, whether it was just being offended or insulted by someone. You can use this breathing. You just sit and you just... <sighs> soften the exhale and inhale. Exhale, soften the exhale. Make that sound. I, I, I was called upon right after nine eleven to work with the... Um, families of some of the burn victims that were survivors of the World Trade Center bombing. And um, I went in and not knowing in the least what I could do to be helpful. And I walked into this room of people, one of my friends who is the director of the Center for Traumatic Stress Studies at Wild Cornell called me and she said, just come up here and do what you can And so I walked into this room of about 20, 25 people and I just sat down, burst out crying. And this man came and put his arm around me and I was just like, wow, what can we do together? Let's just sit together and see what we can do that will give us a moment of relief or a moment to help us strengthen our ability to deal with what we're facing. You know, I I certainly wasn't going to go in there and teach these people how to relax or even presuppose that I knew what could be helpful because the, the suffering was beyond what you could even imagine, you know. And so I taught them this breathing, and we all sat there and just... and they just listen to the breath. And the idea of making that little sound is that you bring your attention to the sound, and you just follow the sound. And it was amazing how these people just kind of grabbed onto this technique like it was a life preserver. And a couple people fell asleep. Um, one man who had said, Oh, my God, I haven't slept in 48 hours you know, since the, since the towers fell. Said just fell sound asleep on the on on a couch and, and then they came to me and said uh, when we when we came out of it we we sat like that for I don't thirty five or forty minutes and and uh, the man who had been sleeping woke up and he said you know, could could you come back tomorrow and so I did and that program turned into a, a still ongoing. Um, training for many of the therapists that work in, uh, in in the Center for Traumatic Stress Studies and for all the employees at um, the caregivers at Wild Cornell. So it was started with just a simple breathing technique. But yeah, it's a it's a great technique. It's one of the first techniques we teach uh, veterans to begin to just keep their attention present and. Um, We find that that's really helpful in dealing with the clusters of symptoms of post-traumatic stress like re-experiencing and avoidance and um, hyperarousal. I mean, if you go through, we all experience trauma, but some people have more catastrophic trauma than others. and, um, And people have different levels of resilience. Some people are... Not everyone who goes through trauma ends up with post-traumatic stress. So, um, but it's certainly this idea of getting your attention in present time certainly can pull the mind away from re-experiencing trauma and, and anticipating more trauma in the future if you've been really startled by a, a pretty traumatic event.
0: And Beryl, what does this word ujjayi mean?
1: Ujjai, it's a Sanskrit word. Good question. It's a Sanskrit word that means jai. Basically, in Sanskrit, means hooray, means victory, means uh, and uj, kind of the way it sounds, it means to expand into victory. So, technically, the the um, definition of the word ujjai is to expand into victory breath. And pranayama, as many of our listeners probably know, is just the control of the prana or the energy. And it's, it refers to breathing exercises, but it technically means learning how to manage your energy, which is just a, something most of us can benefit from.
0: Now, you talked a little bit about how yoga might work with post-traumatic stress, even just here at this very beginning level by teaching people how to work with the ujjayi breathing. I'm curious to know more what your understanding is of how traumatic experiences are stored in the body and what the yoga postures do to help release trauma if you think they do, release trauma, and how that is potentially quite an effective approach to working with post-traumatic stress.
1: Oh, boy. I think there are a couple ways to look at that. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, who is a wonderful um, uh, psychiatrist and researcher on the uh, on the effects and tr- treatment for post-traumatic stress and um, the effects of using yoga practices, uh, the beneficial effects of using yoga practices for post-traumatic stress uh, talks about, uh, really is a great advocate of yoga and his his new book is called, I think, The Body Keeps Score he talks about, um, and all of us sort of have this Awareness of working with people with post-traumatic stress that very often, you know, the body is a pretty uncomfortable place to be if you've been through an accident or violation or uh, some kind of traumatic event. Say in while for a veteran while deployed in Afghanistan or Iraq, I mean that that trauma sets up in the cells and the memory of it is stored in the cells and. So the it it kind of makes sense that you wouldn't consciously want to sort of be in that body. It's an uncomfort- it can be an uncomfortable place to be. So often there's a good deal of avoidance and one of the things that I find teaching people to work with the yoga postures and with the breath is is it gets people back into their bodies. It gets you grounded, it gets your feet solid on the ground and you begin to understand that the body can be a safe place to be that the body that you can be in control that things can be relatively predictable when we go through trauma usually those are the three qualities that we don't have we we're not safe it wasn't predictable and we're um, you know we're 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 not in control and so once you start a yoga practice, let's say you're in a in a yoga class specifically designed for uh, working with post traumatic stress, the the first thing the teacher would do would be to just really create a safe space. Um, I've one of my students works with veterans with very severe post traumatic stress and she sits in the room with her back to the door so they can all face the door um she doesn't touch them she doesn't walk up behind them and touch them. these are uh, these are men and women with severe hyperarousal issues that if you go up behind them and touch them they're liable to jump five feet off the floor or turn around and slug you so it it's a long, slow unraveling of of these deep-seated traumas. In yoga, these traumas are called samskaras or impressions, and they set up in the what, what's called the uh, koshas or the energy fields. And it's believed in yoga philosophy and tradition, and I certainly have seen this bear itself out many times, is that through the practices, and the detoxification effects of the practices, whether it's breathing or meditation or asana, that you begin to release some of these traumas that are set up in the energy fields. And you start with the physical body and the, start working the traumas out of the physical body with asana practice, and then you start working out some of the more deep-seated traumas that are lodged in the you know, subconscious and unconscious mind, uh, in psychology, we'd say they'd be, in psychological terms, we'd say they're in the you know, the subconscious or in the unconscious mind. In yoga, you would say they're in some of the more subtle energy fields, uh, the less accessible koshas, which are more subtle, like the causal body and the mental body. And through through pranayama, for example, breathing techniques begin to work out some of the more deep-rooted traumas that are stored in the prana body or in the energy body. Um, and then once you get into meditation practices, you're going even deeper. So you you're not just taking out stress from last weekend. You're taking out stress perhaps from your early childhood and, Certainly, yoga thinking is that you're carrying some scars or these impressions you can carry them from as far back as previous lifetimes, so but they get worked out through the practices.
0: That's very helpful beryl and and i if it's okay, I'd like to ask you a personal question, which is I'm curious to know in your own journey, granted quite different than someone who has been in military service. But in your own journey, whatever the quote-unquote traumas or pains of your life might have been, and you're now almost 72 years of life, I'm curious to know a little bit about how yoga has been instrumental or effective in working out some of those pains or challenges for you personally. If you could give us some examples or share with us about the yoga process for you through those difficult passages.
1: I started meditation in nineteen seventy one. My my first two teachers were a Jain monk by the name of Muni Shri Chitrabanu and Choyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who uh, was the first Tibetan to come here and started the Shambala school, and and so I actually started meditation um, pretty early. I I take you know after that I took a few Asana classes, but I didn't really make that connection between meditation and Asana until about eight or nine years later when I started studying classical yoga and realized oh this is a this is a path this is a this Asana stuff is supposed to lead you toward meditation. And I found, I was working as a biofeedback researcher in L.A. in the early 70s and was doing, we were studying the, fe- the effects of meditation on the brainwave patterns of martial artists, Tibetan monks, Zen meditators, and I just kind of fell into this job and um, learned how to meditate. Um, with these wonderful techniques that I got from my teachers with the aid of biofeedback or what's called now neurofeedback, neurofeedback instrumentation. And so I really had the advantage of using these techniques pretty early to deal with, you know, my mom died when I was 15. Um, My father remarried fairly quickly, like a year after that. He drew out everything that belonged to my mother so there were no memories of that and that this was the 50s there's no like you know grieving process it was just okay that's over let's get on with it and i didn't really deal with my mother's death till i was in my 40s i just thought oh well that must be the way it is and i was an only child and um and then you know you you go through certainly um i went through Lots of stressful times as anyone, and you know, using my yoga practices, I think, is what has kept me um, sane and on track and evolving. And I, I sort of feel like my only purpose really is to consciously evolve, consciously work on my own evolution, and that brings me, you know, brings me. Happiness, joyfulness, contentment, peace of mind, and certainly the desire to share these practices with other people. Um, I'm thinking, for example, about, you know, the idea, everything changes. And we all expect that our parents are going to be there forever, that our kids, that our job, that our retirement account. I mean, the source of our suffering is is, uh, is. Primarily, the fact is caused by the fact that we look at things that are impermanent and expect them to be permanent. And when something changes, when we lose a job or a loved one, or, you know, when I found out I had pretty severe arthritis and my orthopedist walked into an orthopedist's office and she said, You're going to need a hip replacement in 10 years. And I went, Wait a minute, I'm a yoga practitioner. I don't do hip replacements. And I'd been a runner for 10 years and played lacrosse in college and was a skier for 10 years and a dog musher for 10 years and had um, had been in a minor automobile accident where I sort of banged my knee into the dashboard and that kind of threw a hip slightly out of alignment, um, which created an injury that I was totally unaware of. I mean, I just had no idea that i didn't think i'd been injured and that misalignment and then doing all this stuff on top of it uh it started pretty soon you know it's like throwing getting you know having a dent in your car and you throws the alignment out and pretty soon you you know your tire blows out and you've got to take out the dent before you can you can't just put on a new tire so i was you know i went through all the classical stages of first being in denial and then being really pissed off and then being angry and then and then finally i went well you know it's finding that middle path do i resist this and do i fix this with yoga because i'd always been able to fix everything with my asana practices and my pranayama practices and like or do i accept this as inevitable and come to terms with it. And it was, it's finding that middle path, you know, when do you hang on and when do you let go? And I think we face that decision every day of our lives in one way or another. You know, how strong are you in any situation? And when do you just let something go? You know, do you, do you, it's, and, and what makes, helps me to be more clear about right action, about what to do in any given situation, is my practices. That my practices help me to be more finely tuned. and more, You know, you always make mistakes, but then, you, you know, the practice brings you greater awareness, whatever your practice is. And you go, oh, yeah, well, okay, it's probably at the point where I'm, I I need to accept the fact that I'm going to have titanium hips, you know. But we, I remember I was teaching at a Yoga Journal conference and I think I did one of the keynotes and I was talking about my hip replacement, which I had in 2009 and 2010. And Yoga Journal sent me some feedback from one person and her question was, well, why would I want to do yoga with somebody who had done yoga their whole life and still had to have a hip replacement. And I wrote back to Yoga Journal and said, you know, you might want to tell this person that yogis die, too. (laughs) You know, that sooner or later, you know, we are all of the nature to wear out. And um, at some point, you know, you come to peace with this change. So I still have a great practice. I hike and ride my bike. I just got a paddle board. I'm... Have a paddleboarding community, a hiking community. I don't run anymore, but um, but I think I think our practices really help us deal with change, and you ha- you come to the realization that your practices have to change as well. That and, and I'm asked that question all the time. People write and say, "Oh, I'm I'm facing, uh, you know, I have arthritis, and I'm facing uh, the the." possibility of a hip replacement and i want to be able to do my practices and i've my Shtanga yogi and you just go look it's all about human movement it's not about getting both feet behind your head you know yeah it's great if you want to be really flexible if that's your ultimate goal in life but but can you walk up and down a flight of stairs can you get up off the floor can you hike five miles can you pick up your children or your grandchildren can you be a an active participant in the world i mean it's about maintaining health and fitness and well-being and peace of mind and i think our 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 desire when we're younger to be extraordinary physical yogis i think it's a great thing i don't think it's a bad thing but i it's not going to it's not going to be there forever and, and just like anything else, just like our children or our parents or our job, or our retirement account, or you know the the old growth forests or clean water or clean air. I mean, we it's, everything is changing.
0: Now, Beryl, I read that you're working on a new book that is exploring some of the parallels between quantum physics and yoga philosophy. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation this idea of non-locality and how the experience of yoga can tune one to what the physicists are calling non-locality, that what's happening in one place can be felt or affect what's happening in another place, that we're not bound by these limits of spatial distinction. And I'm curious to know what some of the other parallels are between quantum physics and yoga philosophy, that are particularly important to you.
1: Ah, uh, well, I have to confess at first that I am, um, I am a frustrated physicist. That that was my, my, my goal in college was to was to study either cosmology or astrophysics or quantum physics, and um, I was just. I am severely uh, dyslexic and I didn't think that the students that were in my physics classes were any smarter than I was but they were a lot faster at being smart than I was so I switched to comparative religion and philosophy and english and did really well but but the the physics classes were really tough for me so I'm um I'm really fascinated by the theory and the philosophy uh, of, of some of the discoveries, you know, the fact that, that um, well, let's look at the observer effect. You know, the, 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 in quantum theory, uh, what is presupposed is that when you go to measure a subatomic particle and you're looking for a particle, you're going to see a particle, but that particle has the capacity to change into a wave, that when we observe something, it automatically changes it, that we cannot, that there's this world of sort of infinite possibilities, what the Buddhists call emptiness, that everything arises out of this, this soup of infinite potential and that our reality, our experiences, our thoughts, our our wood-burning stoves, our cars, from the material world to everything we experience and think, think, come up out of this soup into manifestation for a nanosecond, and then drop back down into the soup, and then re-manifest again. And so... The quantum physicists say that, you know, that really what the ultimate building, you know, all physics is is has been looking through a reductionist method for what is the ultimate building block of the world. We thought it was the atom for a while, and then it was subatomic particles, and then they divided subatomic particles, and... and some of the current thinking now is that the, the the reality may be nothing but vibration; that it's simply wave. That the yogis would call the sound of Om, would be the the, the sound of the supreme Purusha or supreme consciousness. Um, that that could be the building block that that is the one thing that doesn't change. This this vibration is always present. And the yogis call it the unsounded sound, the, the ayapa mantra, which means uh, it doesn't need to be sounded because that sound is always present. So someone like Michio Kaku, who's a physicist, says it may be very well that the world is made up of nothing but music or vibration, sound. Uh, so, the idea of the observer effect, which says that when you look at something you 're creating it, and that it's not it may be that there really is nothing out there that we're we're all we 're seeing is particles of light it's it 's fascinating to me to to realize what a small percentage of what 's really out there. Is delivered to us by our senses there is no color in the real world the color is created in the our receptors in our eyes that are receiving light and turning it depending on the vibration level or the frequency of the light spectrum that we're getting it's turning it into a color so there's no smell no sound it's impossible to to kind of get your head around, but the the idea of that question when a tree falls in the forest, if there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? We know now the answer is no, you know that because the sound is created in our ears, it's just you know air moving or light moving um, and it so there are you know there are so. As I study this more and more, I see more and more parallels between what the yogis say about empty, or what the Buddhists say about emptiness, what the yogis say about um, supreme purusha, and what the quantum physicists say about maybe it's all just vibration. I just keep seeing more and more parallels between the two worlds. Um, I wish I knew more about physics, um, when it get when the when the explanations start getting really complicated, I sort of go, "Oh, gosh, I, I need a simpler way to understand this."
0: Well, I noticed just in listening to you talk about the observer effect and emptiness, I started feeling intensely happy, which leads uh-huh. me. <laughs> I just have uh, two final questions, and and that happiness leads me to my penultimate question, which is. Beryl, talking to you, what I feel is your sense of being in love with life, if you will. You just seem like someone here in your 70s, a life of yoga behind you. You seem to really enjoy life. And I'm curious to know, one, if that's true. And then secondly, if there is truth in it, what do you think is the basis for your in loveness with life? What do you oh. attribute it to?
1: Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? Thank you so much. I am in love with life. I'm, I'm so lucky. Gosh, I'm just so. You know, I have been through some difficult times. I was in a, a married for twenty five years to a, a beautiful spirit, uh, but a man who was relatively tortured yet bipolar disorder and was um, was on the autism spectrum, and it was a difficult was a difficult time it was a wonderful teaching and um there were some wonderful experiences, but it was challenging and and i you know i just my practice is what got me through those many you know those many difficult times just like like many of us and so i'm really um he died about seven years ago, and um you know the next morning. I was in the yoga shala doing my asana practice, and I was there every day to because it was it was my I referred to a life raft before it was my life raft. It was the way to accept change and say, "Well, it's the end of this chapter, and I'm going on to the next chapter." And um, it helps me deal with fear and. Um, I have a tremendous amount of faith in my practices because the, I've certainly seen them bear fruits. I've certainly seen them take care of me. I've certainly seen the positive effects of meditation and and doing yoga practices. And um, I feel that when you try and live your life according to some of the ethical and moral precepts of yoga that... Um, the universe takes care of you. you know, when you really work to support the universe, I think the universe kind of looks after you. and um, so I'm totally happy with my life. and um, I certainly, thing i mean i i i love hanging out with my dogs i love paddle boarding i love i have siberian huskies that i just adore i don't have children i don't have brothers and sisters both of my parents are dead you know so i i have um very i have some very close friendships with a few people that are sort of my family and certainly i think of many of my students and yoga buddies as my part of my family but um I think there was a second part to that question that I didn't get to after
0: being. No, you did, which is what you attribute that happiness to. But it really sounds to me like you attributed it to your practice, to your yoga practice.
1: I think I do. I think I also have to attribute it to many of my teachers that explained the way things work, you know, and that. um, uh, I I I guess. I guess I do come back to the practice, because when you study the practice and you study the teachings, and um, I think you, this faith that you develop, that if you follow, if you try and follow the teaching, that you are going to become more happy and you are going to become more healthy and my my mom died when she was forty five, and my dad died when he was sixty one, and you know, but that was the era of smoking and drinking. And my dad was a um, was a, a Rhodes Scholar and a super scientist and a was a chemist. He worked with a lot of chemicals and smoked and drank, and but was a, a brilliant mind. And um, I sort of missed certainly having him around as a scientist to ask a lot of these questions about physics that he could have helped out with. But I just feel it's been my my awareness of, of diet and nutrition and as that applies to the yoga lifestyle that has helped me outlive my parents, really. Um, and I know that's always a milestone for people, uh, you know, when you know you know your, your dad dies at age 60 and then you live to be 61, you think, wow, whew, I made it. That's great. Um, but I heard the Dalai Lama say one time, someone asked him, what, uh, what is our ultimate purpose in life? You know, and I thought he was going to say, oh, to help relieve suffering. And he said to be happy. And if you don't know the Dalai Lama you could sort of think, Well, that's kind of self serving. Is that my only purpose is to make myself happy? But you start to realize that it isn't stuff that makes you happy. It isn't it isn't your you know, you we that you look at what you have you look at maybe you have a big house or a big car or lots of things or lots of prestige or a big important position and you look at that and i find people get to the point where they think hmm you know this isn't bringing me all the happiness that i thought it was going to and i see this this great move toward downsizing among people that are that have acquired a lot, now people are sort of going in the other direction of realizing it's kind of a burden to have a lot of stuff. And so I find what makes me happy is helping other people be happy. I mean, this book and giving this book, I just gave this book just the other day right after I received one to a veteran that I had just met who had returned from um, Iraq several years ago. And I just, just the feeling of sharing this practice with somebody and thinking it might be of help was just such an over gave me such an overwhelming sense of joy. I think we we evolve into this this whole idea of engaged yoga, of of the confluence now of the path of you know our monastic practice and combining that with social activism. And I think we as yoga practitioners have a responsibility to be spiritual revolutionaries, and to go out there and do the work because there's a lot of work to do for the planet, for the water, for po- the population, pollution, you know. Uh, and uh, so I think this, you know, I think this idea of, of service and sharing the benefits of a you know of my life's practice with other people and seeing them begin to step on the path and begin to be transformed and begin to experience the benefits of 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 doing yoga and living a yoga lifestyle is just so thrilling i I find that everybody that's in the teacher training programs I run around um, the country is that I ask people, why do you want to teach yoga? You know, And they all say, because I want to share what yoga has done for me with others. And I find that's pretty universal. And um, I, I think it's not a mistake that yoga is so prevalent in our life today. It's popping up everywhere, like dandelions in the springtime. And I think it's here to serve a purpose. It, it may not be the only way to evolve. It's certainly not the only answer to some of the problems that are we're facing as a species and a planet, but it's certainly a good one. And um, I think a lot of people are jumping on, which is, which is great. Makes me happy.
0: And Beryl, just one final question that I want to ask you. If people are listening, they heard your statement that your goal is for 100,000 copies of Yoga for Warriors to get distributed to veterans. If they want to help, if they want to support the work of the Give Back Yoga Foundation, what should they do?
1: Oh, what a wonderful opportunity to share this with everyone. Uh, Givebackyoga.org, on our website, there is a place where you can order. Uh, the Yoga for Warriors book, and for every one that you we sell, we're giving one away. So we have this campaign of buy one, give one. And so if we sell, if we sell a hundred thousand, we hope to give away a hundred thousand. And you know, twenty-five years ago, if someone had said, you know, you know, the U.S. military is going to be doing yoga practice, they're going to be meditating, and doing asana, and that the Defense Department is going to be running studies on the benefits of meditation, and that that soldiers getting ready to deploy are going to be learning yoga, and that veterans are going to be taking teacher training programs and becoming yoga teachers so they can teach yoga to their uh, fellow military brothers and sisters who... <laughs> Who would have believed that? I mean it would have been just incredulous you would have it, people would have been incredulous that that's not possible. that can't be this isn't the one of the primary teachings of yoga nonviolence and um but I think it's the Dharma or the path of the warrior to um to you know go into the world and pursue. Justice, and sometimes that requires that's a, another that's another that's another day's podcast, tammy, on um, the role of the warrior, but I think our warriors, their ultimate goal is to create peace and to bring peace to the world and very often, on the way to that end goal, it requires. You know, it requires setting some people on the on the correct path. You know, it's a um, but I find that all the veterans I've worked with and I talked to, I mean, they all are looking for peace of mind, peace in their hearts, and peace in the world. And um, perhaps their their duty has been to be a warrior for a time in their life, but I think this idea of bringing a yoga practice to uh, to those who have been called upon to be warriors is a is a tremendous joining together of the power of attention I mean warriors are trained to pay attention in the external world and as yoga practitioners we're trained to pay attention in the internal world so it's just about Kind of turning the direction inward. So, yeah, it's great. Please, I would encourage everyone to get order a book from Give Back Yoga Foundation and give it to someone you know who uh, perhaps has returned from Iraq or Afghanistan or flying. Um, we have new adventures um, being created all the time, and and uh, our young people need these practices to help keep them safe and sane and healthy
0: I've been speaking with Beryl Bender Birch of the Give Back Yoga Foundation someone who not only leads teacher trainings encouraging people to be spiritual revolutionaries but Beryl you're a spiritual revolutionary for sure in your own right and you've been (laughs) at it a long time and my hat off to you She has written, with Sounds True, a new book called Yoga for Warriors. Basic training in strength, resilience, and peace of mind. It's a system for veterans and military service, men and women. Beryl Bender-Birch, wonderful to talk with you today. Thank you so much.
1: Tammy Simon, thank you so much. It has been an absolute delight, and I'm so grateful to have had an opportunity to share this time with you and all our listeners.
0: SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.